0: Right, I'm just going to explain the structure of this series. Um, This lecture, as you can see, is on intellect and consciousness, and it ranges across George Eliot's works. Um, Next week is going to be on genre and justice, and it will have a particular concentration on Adam Bede and Daniel Deronda*. Um, The next week, um, that's then week seven, is going to be on George Eliot's reception history. So you can put your own reactions to Eliot in some kind of a context. Then in a slight change from what's on the lecture list, um, that will be the last lecture. In week eight, there are going to be two classes, one on Monday and one on Tuesday, both at 11 o'clock in a smaller room. The first of those classes, the one on Monday, is going to be on George Eliot and religion and the other one is going to be on George Eliot in her European context and there I would actually be interested in finding out which other countries you're interested in. For example, if you know German we can look at her in her German context likewise her French context Um, I'm at the moment editing a book on George Eliot's European reception history going as far as as Eastern Europe um, and including Scandinavia. So for that I would actually find out what you're interested in and concentrate accordingly. You wouldn't be expected to do any reading in advance or in advance of either of those classes, nor would I force anybody to speak if they didn't want to. In other words, you don't need to be afraid of turning up for a class. But there are three lectures from um, this to seventh week. Um, For those of you who are not familiar with George Eliot's works, it's important to appreciate that George Eliot had a brain the size of a proverbial planet. One suffers for this as a critic of her. There is a moment in *Daniel Deronda* when the beautiful but ill-educated heroine is talking to the beautiful but extremely educated hero, and realises with a lurch the mountainous trouble—that sorry, the mountainous travel—that her mind would have to take in order to join his. I say therefore, pity the critic of Eliot who knew not just French and German and Greek and Latin, but Italian, Spanish and Hebrew, and read obscure works in all of these languages. No one who writes about her has read everything that she read. And this extraordinary intellect and its presence in her fiction has sometimes been held against her, as I will discuss in more detail in the lecture on her reception history in week seven. This was partly because she was a woman, and therefore a blue stocking. This is a term which is often associated with the late 19th century new woman, but the original blue stockings were an informal group of learned men and women in London in the second half of the 18th century. The name came from the blue stockings worn by one of the male members of the group. Then the term was used affectionately and derisively, But by the beginning of the 19th century, it had become the negative term, applied almost exclusively to females, which it still is. But the criticism of Eliot's intellectualism was not all connected with gender. Henry James, who declared after his first meeting with Eliot, I have just fallen in love with a great horse-faced blue stocking had other reasons when he said that the philosophic door was always open on her fictional stage and admitted daylight to the theatre, which alienated one from the fiction as fiction. He described Romola as overladen with learning. It smells of the lamp. It tastes just perceptibly of pedantry. Let me give you a flavour of the kind of passage that I think James had in mind. The peddler, Bratti, is taking Tito Malama through the streets of Florence. They had now emerged from the narrow streets into a broad piazza, known to the elder Florentine writers as the Mercato Vecchio, or the old market. The piazza, though it had been the scene of a provision market from time immemorial, and may perhaps, says fond imagination, be the very spot to which the Pesulian ancestors of the Florentines descended from their high fasteners to traffic with the rustic population of the valley, had not been shunned as a place of residence by Florentine wealth. In the early decades of the 15th century, which was now near its end... And so it goes on, instructing us about the families which had dominated the city, its mingled dialects, how the butcher's stalls used to be described by the poet Pucci, and the signoria's legislation regarding the display of carcasses on market stalls. The peddler's dialogue, too, might be thought to smell of the lamp. So a peddler tells Taito the antihero. It is your good fortune, young man, that I have happened to be walking in from Robbazzano this morning and turned out of my way to the Mercato Vecchio to say an ave at the barrio. Margaret Oliphant praised this novel as a guidebook to Florence, not to be equaled. In terms of Eliot's reading, she was well read in contemporary literature, historiography, material science, sociology, and higher criticism of the Bible. That is, the kind of criticism which looked at the historical evidence for biblical claims and in some cases gave socio-psychological explanations for what seemed to be without historical foundation. Her first major achievements were translations of two such works. Strauss's Das Leben Jesu, The Life of Jesus, and Feuerbach's Das Wesen Christentums, The Essence of Christianity. Her novels were painstakingly researched. Where possible, she visited the places she intended to write about, in space. For example, she travelled to Spain to write her poem, The Spanish Gypsy, and of course to Florence for Romola. Lewis's experience of a month's research visit in, in Florence with Eliot might have resembled Dorothea's experience of being in Rome with Casabon, but for the fact that Eliot allowed Lewis to help her in her researches, which involved taking notes on buildings, noting the street layout, and reading books on costume, topography, biography, and history in the Magliobeckian Library. Daniel Deronda impressed Jewish readers with its knowledge of Jewish history and traditions, which exceeded that of many contemporary British Jews. She started learning Hebrew for the purpose of writing it. Finally, the most obvious demonstration of her intellectual clarity and power is simply in the nature of her prose itself a gift for concise and incisive generalizations, which are not which are not so much found where you might expect to find them in the epigraphs which she wrote for some of her her chapters and novels. Those tend to be more opaque and oblique, but flashing out suddenly like jewels in the narrative fabric. The great problem of the shifting relation between passion and duty is clear to no man who is capable of apprehending it. (coughs) Souls have complexions too. What will suit one will not suit another. Maybe George Coombe, the phrenologist, interpreter of head shapes, was onto something when he felt Eliot's head in 1851 <coughs> and declared that she had great analytic power, an instinctive soundness of judgment, and I quote, simply a very large brain. The contempt which a large-sculled person may be inclined to feel for the more moderately sculled is, is occasionally apparent in her writing. Notably, in her 1865 essay, Servant's Logic, the second of her four essays for the Pall Mall Gazette, under the pen name Saccharissa. In this, Saccharissa argues that The majority of minds are no more to be controlled by strong reasons than plum pudding is to be grasped by sharp pincers. In particular, in reasoning with servants, we are likely to be thwarted by discovering that our axioms are not theirs. For example, they presuppose that an effect may exist without a cause, that like causes will constantly produce unlike effects, that all may mean only some, that there is no difference between little and none, and so on. She gives various examples about how arguments with your cook can go. After which, you depart with a sigh, feeling that to deposit rules in Sally's mind is very much like depositing your thimble in a dust heap. And the moral of all this is that wise masters and mistresses will not argue with their servants, will not give them reasons, will not consult them. Reason about things with your servants, consult them, give them suffrage, and you produce no other effect in them than a sense of anarchy in the house a suspicion of irresoluteness in you, the most opposed to that spirit of order and promptitude which can alone enable them to fill their place as well and make their lives respectable. Intellectual mediocrity is satirised in several characters. Not so much in Casaubon, who is too serious a portrait to consistently attract the amused contempt which is a necessary component of satire. But, for example, Mr. Van der Noot in Daniel Deronda, who, quote, could probably tell everything about a great philosopher or physicist except his theories or discoveries. Or the Reverend Gascoigne, who writes two ecclesiastical articles, which, since he is not self-critical himself, and no one else bothers to criticize them even if they read read them, give him perhaps a more suffusive sense of achievement than the production of a whole divina commedia. Malinger's worldly valuation of learning when he tells Daniel, the truth is, unless a man can get the prestige and income of a don and write donish books, it's hardly worthwhile for him to make a Greek and Latin machine of himself and be able to spin you out pages of the Greek dramatists at any verse you'll give him a cue. Q- but then later, talking of dons, I've seen dons make a capital figure in society, and occasionally he can shoot you down a cartload of learning in the right place, which will tell in politics. Such men are wanted, and if you have any turn for, uh, turn for being a don, I say nothing against it. Though in a sense, Sir Hugo Malinger here speaks for Eliot in observing that in practical life no one does give you a cue for pages of Greek. Eliot found the English, and particularly the Oxbridge, that is a contemporary term coined in Thackeray's Pendennis, Oxbridge educational program found it wretchedly limited in its concentration on the classics, which is why she allows certain of her characters to breathe in the freer air of academia on the continent. Lydgate and Ladislaw study in Heidelberg and Paris. Mordecai in Daniel <laughs> studies in Hamburg and Göttingen quote, that I might take a larger outlook on my people and on the Gentile world and drink knowledge at all sources. Daniel leaves Cambridge without completing his degree because he wanted to be rid of a merely English attitude in studies. Latimer in the lifted veil spends his happiest years at school in Switzerland and accordingly it was to Switzerland that Elliot and Lewis sent Lewis's sons by his first marriage. Elliot wants consciousness to be broad. The metaphor of breadth often appears in her writing as a positive one with connotations of correspondent tolerance. Daniel has a meditative yearning after wide knowledge and he advises Gwendolyn to extend the narrow round of her thought. Certainly, (coughs) breadth of consciousness requires a certain height and depth of consciousness. Some knowledge of what the Hebrew religion might have turned into at this date is apparently a precondition for Gentile sympathy with the Jews. But the point of this knowledge does not lie in itself, but in its role in making one more sympathetic with another group of people, or with one's own group of people if one happens to be a Jew. Tito Malama in Romola wears his learning not only lightly, but superficially. His knowledge of Greek texts is purely a means to rise in late 15th century Florence, but it does not exercise a governing effect on his actions. Romola's father, Bardo di Badi, knows his Greek and Latin manuscripts well, and he embodies some of the nobility of a Renaissance man, but he is also selfish, exacting, narrow, brittle, self-pitying, and without empathy. It is relevant that he is of a family which were the Christian Rothschilds of that time, but were destroyed by popular rage in the middle of the 14th century, and that, quote, he was a man with a deep-veined hand, cramped by much copying of manuscripts, who ate sparing dinners and wore threadbare clothes, who sat among his books and his marble fragments of the past and saw them only by the light of those far-off younger days which still shone in his memory. He was a moneyless, blind, old scholar. He represents the end of the Renaissance, at a time when new life was surging in the Christian Savonarolan party. But if learning does not guarantee goodness, and it doesn't, that's not an excuse for ignorance. The Reverend Casaubon, Bardi's ignoble successor in Eliot's oeuvre, is ignorant of modern German scholarship, singularly unlike Eliot herself. And this fits with the fact that he is spiritually puny and emotionally anemic. He does not dare to think outside of his parochially English sphere. One of the points of education is to make you wise, the term is connected to the German wissen to know. In its oldian Beowulfian sense sorry in its oldest Beowulfian sense, as now, it means possessing sound judgment of what is right or fitting and being disposed to act accordingly. To wise as a transitive verb, meant to show some on the way. Wise also, and from the same time, meant clever, skilled, or expert in something, as in the magic arts, hence a wise woman, 1639. From this, it acquired a slightly pejorative edge, as in worldly wise. Eliot is well aware of this dual aspect, and her narrators and characters use the term in both ethically positive and neutral to (coughs) negative senses. But there is a sense of the term which she embraced. Dorothea is looking for a wise man as her husband and is wise to do so, even though she's not wise in her discernment of where wisdom lies. George Eliot herself acquired the epithet the wise woman and not in the sense of a witch doctor, which was, um, and this sense, the wise woman, was popularized by Alexander Maine in his Wise, Witty, and Tender Sayings of George Eliot, and by Cross, Eliot's second husband, or first legal husband, in his biography of Eliot. The reverse of wise is to be silly, as in silly novels by lady novelists, written in 1856, an indictment of fatuity, sentimentality, romance, (laughs) and artifice in contemporary women's novels. Then you have the silly female characters, Romola, Rosie, Esther, (coughs) Dorothea and Gwendolyn in their different ways simply haven't been well enough educated in the broadest sense of the term to avoid making initial mistakes in life or in Rosie's case to avoid being someone else's mistake. Several of these, along with their 1857 counterpart, Madame Bovary, identify imaginatively with the silly novels which they read. Eliot wished for better education for women and in 1867 gave financial support to the foundation of Girton, the first Oxbridge Women's College. She also wished for working men to be better educated, particularly after many of them had been given the vote in the Second Reform Act of the same year. She ventriloquised those concerns in her Address to (coughs) Working Men by Felix Holt, which was commissioned by her publisher Blackwood for his Edinburgh magazine in 1868. Felix argues that political reform is best brought about from below by the individual spiritual reform which is fostered by education, rather than being imposed from above by parliamentary acts. Knowledge must therefore be useful and not useless, connected with the whole self, not disconnected, flexible rather than brittle. The last metaphor is one I take from the narrator's description of Gwendolyn. In the schoolroom, her quick mind had taken readily that strong starch of unexplained rules and disconnected facts, which saves ignorance from any painful sense of limpness. She also came to distrust abstraction, philosophical, ethical, or political. She wrote two review essays which expressed distrust, of the German idealist tendency to prioritise concepts over facts, which, quote, is an attempt to to poise the universe on one's head. The first was her 1851 review of Mackey's The Progress of the Intellect as exemplified in The Religious Development of the Greeks and Hebrews, in which she wrote that, quote, the greater solidity and directness of the English mind ensure a superiority of treatment, compared to the Germans from whom it learns. In her 1855 review of Otto Friedrich Krupp's The Future of German Philosophy, she praised the fact that, rarely for a German, he inclined towards the British tradition of empiricism and the a posteriori path. In the realm of ethics, she distrusted abstract principles divorced from particular application. In her 1855 essay, Evangelical Teaching, Dr. Cumming, she attacked the evangelical preacher John Cumming, a minister of the Scottish National Church, for intellectual pretension and the sometimes cruel inadequacy of doctrine in relation to individual experience. Remember that Eliot herself had been a teenaged evangelical in his attacking positions which she had once embraced. It's also worth noticing the overlap of this attitude with that of Matthew Arnold in his treatise Literature and Dogma of 1873. For those of you who would like to come to the class on and religion, we'll be looking a bit more at this by one of England's foremost poets and sages in greater detail, Eliot read this work and took detailed notes on it, including his major point that, quote, religion is morality heightened by emotion. Arnold writes that the Hebrews, by which he means the ancient Jews, were writing poetry, not philosophy, in the Old Testament. Western, Catholic, and Protestant theologians have gone very wrong in treating essentially literary writing as though it were metaphysics for which Arnold considers the Jews to have no gift. Eliot would have liked this argument because it fitted with her sense that ethics should always be infused by the emotion of fellow feeling. Hence the narrator's defence in Adam Bede of the failings of Reverend Irwin. He really had no very lofty aims, no theological enthusiasm. If I were closely questioned, I should be obliged to confess that he felt no serious alarms about the souls of his parishioners. If he had been in the habit of speaking theoretically, he would perhaps have said that the only healthy form religion could take in simple minds was that of certain dim but strong emotions suffusing themselves as a hallowing influence over the family affections and neighbourly duties. He had that charity which has sometimes been lacking to very illustrious virtue. He was tender to other men's failings and unwilling to impute evil. In the Mill on the Floss, the narrator states plainly, moral judgments must remain false and hollow unless they are checked and enlightened by a perpetual reference to the special circumstances that mark the individual lot. The argument of literature and dogma also fitted with her sense that ethics are best expressed by literature rather than philosophy, which was, of course, a major part of the impetus behind her writing fiction, In her review of Reel's Natural History of German Life, written three months before she started her own first work of fiction, The Sad uh, Fortunes of the Reverend Amos Barton, she famously said, the greatest benefit we owe the artist is the extension of our sympathies. Similarly, her political views were non-theoretical and organicist. Again, Felix Holt's address to working men contains evidence of this. She is like the first generation romantics such as Coleridge in her aspiration to affect, to improve the lot of individuals by educating their affections. Even science, she believed, in a way which anticipated a post-uncertainty principle, post-quantum physics attitude was related to literature in that a leap of imagination is required in the formation of hypotheses. She believed, quote, the most thorough experientialists admit intuition, i.e. direct impression of sensibility underlying all proof, as necessary starting points for thought. In Middlemarch, she recalls the lamp imagery of romanticism in her reference to the inward light which is the last refinement of energy, necessary to reveal subtle actions inaccessible by any kind of lens. In the opening epigraph to book one of Daniel Deronda, she states that even science, the strict measurer, is obliged to start with a make-believe unit. His less accurate grandmother poetry has always been understood to start in the middle. Conversely, the Jewish prophet and mystic Mordecai is likened to an experimenter. When Mordecai finds Daniel, the man he's been looking for, his exaltation was not widely different from that of the experimenter, bending over the first stirrings of change that correspond to what, in the fervor of concentrated prevision, his thought had foreshadowed. With regard to her own artistry, in a famous letter to Dr. Payne, she stated that I become more and more timid, with less daring to adopt any formula which does not get itself clothed for me in some human figure and individual experience. This directly countered such critics as James, who, as we've heard, criticised her for moving from the abstract to the concrete rather than the other way round. The narrator of the Mill on the Floss states, All people of broad, strong sense, that's broad again, have an instinctive repugnance to the man of maxims, because such people early discern that the mysterious complexity of our life is not to be embraced by maxims. And that to lace ourselves up in formulas of that sort is to repress all the divine promptings and inspirations that spring from growing insight and sympathy. Of course there's a paradox here. <laughs> Several of the epigrammatic ethical aperçus which glint in her prose, are taken from her notebooks. In other words, they have been found in advance and stitched in to her fiction. In other words, you don't need to go to Alexander Mayne's wise, witty, and tender sayings of George Eliot in order to see those those aperçus in isolation from their substantive context. You can go straight to the notebooks, which in many cases have been reproduced and can be found in libraries. The English library here has got several. The narrator's wise, witty, and tender sayings are sometimes positioned before the situation from which the narrator historian purportedly draws them as inductions. For example, in Middlemarch, the image of a candle held against a randomly scratched mirror revealing concentric circles of scratches as a metaphor for egotism is followed by an exemplary demonstration of Rosie's selfishness. And in Eliot's career as a whole, she published her opinions in critical prose, that is her journalism, (coughs) before she did so in her fiction. She confessed that she felt, quote, the severe effort of trying to make certain ideas thoroughly incarnate, as if they had revealed themselves to me first in the flesh and not in the spirit. On the other hand, of course, it does work both ways generalizations about human nature do rely on survey and observation and Lydgate's assertion, a man's mind must be continually expanding and shrinking between the whole human horizon and the horizon of an object glass is analogous to her own technique of moving from a specific case to a generalization or the reverse. But for Eliot, the most important object of knowledge is not the natural world Far less is it God. But for her, as for Alexander Pope, the proper study of mankind is man. And to see one's fellow people clearly is a precondition for, and a symptom of, having sympathy for them. Which is, for Eliot, the quintessence of ethical behaviour. Of Tertius Lydgate's arrival in Middlemarch, the narrator comments... For surely all must admit that a man may be puffed and belauded, envied, ridiculed, counted upon as a tool and fallen in love with, or at least selected as a future husband, and yet remain virtually unknown, known merely as a cluster of signs for his neighbour's false suppositions. In fact, most of the characters in Middlemarch are at some point just that, a cluster of signs for their neighbours' false suppositions. Dorothea misinterprets her discovery of Ladislaw and Rosie together because she does not sufficiently know Ladislaw. Middlemarch misinterprets Lydgate's acceptance of Bulstrode's money because it does not sufficiently know Lydgate. And these failures to know are often correlated with egotism, fusing the spheres of what is and what ought to be which many philosophers have striven to keep separate. This fusion is apparent in the phrase moral stupidity. In the sentence, we are all of us born into moral stupidity, taking the world as an udder to feed our supreme selves. It's also apparent in the phrase by the early 20th century Labour politician Norman Angell, the moral obligation to be intelligent well how do we be that I mentioned that Elliot understood the imagination to have a role alongside observation in the natural sciences I think that she felt somewhat similar about the investigation of one's neighbours the difference though is that whereas science does not require a leap of empathy into the subjectivity of for example a stratum of rock The understanding of people does require such a leap. Hence the difference between two German concepts, with which Eliot would have been familiar. The Naturwissenschaften, the natural sciences, pursued Erklärung, explanation. On the other hand, the Geisteswissenschaften, or humanities, literally, it's a nice term, the soul sciences, sought Verstehen, understanding. Verstehen is defined by the Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy as a method in the human sciences that aims at constructing meanings from the agent's point of view. When imagination does not collaborate with observation, however, it is ethically negative as in silly novels by lady novelists, or Hetty's, quote, little silly imagination, which fills itself with images of marriage to Arthur Donnythorne, or her urban counterpart, Rosie, in whose romance it was not necessary to imagine much about the inward life of the hero or of his serious business in the world, or of her brother, Fred Vincy whose joyous imaginative activity, which fashions events according to desire, leads him to buy a bad horse. Sympathetic imagination requires a temporary suspension of consciousness of one's own. Dorothea is active in clutching her pain and compelling it to silence in order, the more accurately, to think of those three. Lydgate, Ladislaw, Rosie... Correspondingly, a certain kind of self-consciousness is egotistical. For example, Gwendolyn's girlish self-exhibition, her self-control when appearing as Grandcourt's wife, which Daniel finds demonic self-control, and Alcari's act- acting the emotion which she actually feels, which is attributed to the narrator by the narrator um, to a kind of double consciousness. One guarantor of Myra's goodness is that she wholly lacks this self-consciousness. Gwendolyn is only able to appeal to Daniel in a spirit of childlike indiscretion. However, even when the self is compelled to silence, one is unlikely to achieve perfect knowledge of the other. The German idealist philosopher Fichte in his Wissenschaftslehre argues that the real is not discoverable by actual science, but by the science which all good science strives to be. Knowledge achieves only adequation to the real, adequatio ad rem. Eliot's own epistemology is analogous, but to her, adequation is a moral aim. And the achievement of knowledge isn't just something done in the present and forgotten, for her, memory carries a strong moral charge. Her egotists are often characters without memory, like Hetty, who imagines her future marriage without any feeling of regret for those that she would be leaving behind. Quote, there are some plants that have hardly any roots. You may tear them from their native nook, of rock or wall, and just lay them over your, over your ornamental flowerpot and they blossom none the worse. Hetty could have cast all her past <coughs> life behind and never cared to be reminded of it again. Or Tito, who is always trying to forget about the father that he has abandoned, but who keeps inconveniently popping up and preventing him from forgetting. Maggie, on the other hand, explains in the middle of the class to Stephen Guest why she can't elope with him by appealing to their memory of his engagement to her cousin Lucy and of her own friendship with Philip. She says, If the past is not to bind us, where can duty lie? We should have no law but that inclination of the moment. There are several characters in Eliot's fiction who are relatively uneducated, but who nonetheless possess moral intelligence. For example, Dinah Morris, Adam Bede, Seth Bede, Silas Marner after Eppie's arrival, and all three of the Garths in Middlemarch. The striking exception is Daniel Deronda, which shifts its social register for the first time into the English aristocracy, and which pays little attention to those of the Garth's class or lower. However, it's important that those who are capable of procuring an education do so. Adam has a reputation for learning within Hayslope. Mary Garth writes a children's book, Stories of Great Men Taken from Plutarch, which the, the middle marchers, again reading the signs incorrectly, imagine must have been written by the varsity-educated Fred. Eliot also studies the dangers of partial understanding of other people. Several of her characters have a clear insight into other people's weaknesses, but into nothing else. A symptom and cause of their lack of sympathy with them. In Middlemarch, Featherstone understands perfectly well the cupidity of those visiting relatives. But this understanding springs from likeness, just as King, Le- King Lear's Cornwall and Edmund understand each other without loving each other. Or Jordan Paris Hilton. By the same token, Grandcourt understands Gwendolyn and his companion Lush, for the most part, understands Grandcourt. These characters, simply by virtue of their acuity, tend to come off better than those who have the inverse kind of partial sight of idealizing others, as Adam does Hetty, as Hetty does Arthur. But they do not enjoy life. Eliot's most sustained study of the dangers of perception only of other people's foibles is her short story The Lifted Veil she wrote this at the same time as The Mill on the Floss in 1860 Blackwood published it anonymously as he didn't want to tarnish the reputation of his new star the author of Adam Bede by this jeu de melancolie*, mélanc- Eliot's phrase for a long time The Lifted Veil has received a little critical attention for the same reason that it's it's attracted little popular attention. It is painful to read. But since 1990, it's attracted an increasing amount of critical attention. For those of you who haven't read it, the protagonist, Latimer, recounts his life in the the first person soon before he knows that he's going to die. As a boy, he had an illness, after which he became clairvoyant, and can at certain times see both his own future and other people's thoughts. What he sees of others is unremittingly negative. The vagrant, frivolous ideas and emotions of some uninteresting acquaintance, Mrs. Fillmore, for example, would force themselves on my consciousness like an importunate, ill-played musical instrument or the loud activity of an imprisoned insect. He is attracted to Bertha partly because because she is temporarily opaque to him. But when, quote, the terrible moment of complete illumination had come to me, I saw that the darkness had hidden no landscape from me, but only a blank prosaic wall. But this superadded consciousness, wearying and annoying enough, when it urged on me the, the trivial experience of indifferent people became an intense pain and grief when it seemed to be opening to me the souls of those who were in a close relationship to me. When the rational talk, the graceful attentions, the wittily turned phrases and the kindly deeds which used to make the web of their characters... We're seen as if thrust asunder by a microscopic vision that showed all the intermediate frivolities, all the suppressed egoism, all the struggling chaos of perilities, meanness, vague capricious memories and indolent makeshift thoughts from which human words and deeds emerge like leaflets covering a fermenting heap. Latimer's knowledge is partial because it is without sympathy. When Eliot's friend Edith Simcox asked for a moral from this story, Lewis said, Oh, but the moral is plain enough. It's only an ex- ex- exaggeration of what ha- happens the one sided knowing of things in relation to the South, which is not whole knowledge because tout comprendre est tout pardonner. To understand all is to forgive all. His first instance, Latimer's, of clairvoyance is a vision of Prague brought on by his father happening to mention the city which they are about to visit and where he has never been. A city... Unrefreshed for ages by dews of night or the rushing rain cloud, scorching the dusty, weary, time-eaten grandeur of a people doomed to live on in the stale repetition of memories, like deposed and superannuated kings in their regal gold-interwoven tatters, the city looked so thirsty that the broad river seemed to me a sheet of metal. He is confirmed in his suspicion that what he is in fact experiencing is clairvoyance when they get to Prague and it looks as he had thought that it looked. But this is not the Prague which Eliot, when she visited it in eighteen fifty eight, described as a grand old city. For the cabinet edition of this story, she added the epigraph, which has been included in all subsequent editions Give me no light, great heaven but such as turns to energy of human fellowship. No powers beyond the growing heritage that makes completer manhood. The narrative voice of, in Middlemarch works in this way, lifting the veil, for example, on how Casaubon or Bulstrode are, in fact, to be sympathized with. And the work itself induces a kind of horrified sympathy for Latimer, when he asks, are you unable to give me your sympathy, you who read this? The answer is unlikely to be yes. It, it is a pathology, moral and physiological. And it won't surprise you to hear, Eliot was well read in modern physiological theory, phrenology and mesmeric practice. Throughout her fiction, Eliot makes much use of the modern vocabulary of consciousness. The unconscious mind was not common currency until the 1880s after Eliot had died, but she anticipates it in her last novels in such phrases as suppressed consciousness, deep fold of his consciousness, under-consciousness, that's hyphenated, and dark seed growths of consciousness. She accepts the modern explanations of brain function stating that A century ago, the average man and all his forefathers had not the slightest notion of that electrical discharge by means of which they had all wagged their tongues mistakenly. The continuation, any more than they were aware of the secluded anguish of exceptional sensitiveness into which many a carelessly begotten child of man is born, attributes by association an ethical imperative to empirical openness... She makes several studies of mental illness. Baldassare, Titus' father in Romola, loses his memory through the traumatic stress of being shipwrecked, the loss of his wealth and the loss of his adopted son and slavery. Gwendolyn, in her less spectacular way, is also a study in trauma. Today she would probably be sent to a sex therapist to talk through her problems. But mental abnormality can also be positive. Latimer in the lifted veil tries to comfort himself with the thought, did not Novalis feel his inspiration intensified under the progress of consumption? It's not irrelevant, I think, to Mordecai's spiritual power that he is dying of consumption. However, it's important to note that Eliot's physiological and psychological vocabulary works in frictionless cooperation with the far older, theologically freighted vocabulary of soul. In Eliot's use, soul often corresponds to the unconscious. Rex's deep fold of his consciousness corresponds to his secret soul. The soul of the novel's epigraph, where lurks vengeance as exhalations laden with slow death, is an ethical version of Freud's horror-filled Cave of the Unconscious. Eliot's characters are not reducible to materialism or determinism any more than Mordecai's visions are reducible to, even if they're correspondent with, his tuberculosis. The lifted veil is full of contemporary science, but Eliot does not follow the example of any of the actual case studies that she had read about. She slightly distorts them. She uses some science which even at the time was felt to be pseudoscience or about which she herself was agnostic. And she can do this because she is is transmuting the whole of Latimer's life into a work of art, whereas Latimer, the narrator... The failed poet can only manage autobiography. So far I've implied that perception, provided it be not partial to either the good, which leads you into foolishness, or the bad, which leads you into misanthropy, is a good thing. But there is a sense in this disturbed, disturbing story that too much awareness of others is insupportable. It was written when Eliot was depressed, as she periodically was. Latimer comments of his own hale and hearty brother, Alfred, It is to such as you that the good of this world falls. Ready dullness, healthy selfishness, good-tempered conceit are the keys to happiness. He says it in a moment of exasperation after Alfred has invited him to go hunting to lift his spirits. But at other times he might well envy those who lack his gift and his affliction. It was like a preternaturally heightened sense of hearing, making audible to one a roar of sound where others found perfect stillness. And those of you who know your Middlemarch recall one of the most quoted narratorial intervention in the, interventions in the whole of Elliot's fiction. If we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's hearts beat, and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. As it is, the quickest of us walk about well-wadded in stupidity. A certain amount of stupidity, then, is not necessarily a bad thing. It follows that a certain amount of egotism is not necessarily a bad thing. Eliot makes this explicit, finally, in the character of Daniel Deronda. When he's at Cambridge, he makes a friend, Hans, who, for a preposterous <laughs> reason, temporarily loses his sight. Daniel generously helps him in studying for a classics scholarship, which Hans wins, but at the expense of losing his own chances of winning a, ma- a mathematics scholarship. His own kind guardian is not angry at his failure, but warns him, My dear boy, it is good to be unselfish and generous, but don't carry that too far. It will not do to give yourself to be melted down for the benefit of the tallow trade. You must know where to find yourself. It is finding himself that is precisely what he does not know how to do. Rather, he aspires to the opposite. One day he's rowing by himself on the Thames and he stops at the bend by Kew Gardens. Quote, He lay with his hands behind his head, propped on a level with the boat's edge so that he could see all around him but could not be seen by anyone at a few yards' distance. And for a long while, he never turned his eyes from the view right in front of him. He was forgetting everything else in half speculative, half involuntary, identification of himself with the objects he was looking at thinking how far it might be possible habitually to shift his centre till his own personality would be no less outside him than the landscape when the sense of something moving on the bank opposite him where it was bordered by a line of willow bushes made him turn his glance thitherward the thing that is moving is Myra the woman he is about to save from suicide will later recognize as a fellow Jew, will marry, and with whom he will set out to Palestine and a life devoted to the Zionist cause. What Daniel needed and didn't initially have is a purpose in life because he would not restrict his sympathies. Once he discovers that he's a Jew, he's delimited, he will help the Jews. He will align his individual consciousness with Jewish race race consciousness, but not with the world at large or with the willows at Kew. His intellectual consciousness is limited too. He accepts the Jewish religion along with his Jewish identity without any intellectual frisson, any anguish about the Christian God he's leaving behind or the incompatibility of faiths. He, like all of Elliot's characters, forms a notable contrast to George Eliot, who, on the basis of reason, found God and immortality, respectively, inconceivable and unbelievable. And so this lecture comes full circle. We started with Elliot's attitude towards the intellect and we returned to it, finding that for all her own achievement and her emphasis on education, she does endorse cases of fuzziness, of academic mediocrity, where they are the result of valuing the spiritual above the conceptual. Daniel is endorsed by the novel for sacrificing his chances of becoming a don to help his friend, not only because Eliot considered Cambridge courses narrow and uninteresting, but because he did the right thing. Elliot herself studied Hebrew, as was her wont, with a vengeance, but she writes indulgently about Daniel sitting up in bed with a Hebrew grammar and for an hour doing nothing but thinking about Gwendolen and Grandcourt. In her oeuvre as a whole, the most academic characters are negative, and her last novel is not sufficiently interested in the kind of sustained intellectual labour which was required in order to research it, even to satirise it. There is no Casaubon. Mainstream Judaism has since antiquity accorded a high value to intellectual debate, yet it's not with that kind of Judaism that Mordecai or the novel are concerned. His consciousness of his religion takes the form of poetry. Indeed, his consciousness and unconsciousness are hardly distinguished. His mind wrought so constantly in images that his coherent trains of thought often resembled the significant dreams attributed to sleepers by waking persons in their most inventive moments. Nay, they often resembled genuine dreams in their way of breaking off the passage from the known to the unknown. It's therefore appropriate that his brow is described as not high, but broad, and his intellect is described as emotional. Thank you.